Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. All right. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. And I'm so happy to be joined today by production designer Michael Perry, whose work you might know from films such as Promising Young Woman, It Follows, and Under the Silver Lake. And now he's starting the new year off with a bang with two huge films, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is now on Netflix, and I Want You Back, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. So Michael, thanks so much for chatting with me. (laughs) You made me sound much more important than I am. No. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. You definitely are. Um, I want to start talking about Texas Chainsaw with you because I sure. know this was long in development under wraps for a really long time. So I know that it's very, it, it's come to fruition, definitely. Um, yes. You being able to finally talk about it and be open about um, your process. has to be actually say, say something is good. Yeah. I don't Could know you- how the Marvel guys do it, man. No. Really yeah. Now, now you have a little taste of what they have to go through. Yeah. Um, but could you bring walk, bring me back to the beginning of this? The film's directed by David Blue Garcia, who's a longtime DP. He's only just started recently directing. Mm-hmm. What was that initial conversation like between you and David? Well, we here we go to the other secret part mm-hmm. that you can't necessarily talk about. But I, originally, David was not our mm-hmm. director. It was uh, two fellows out of Belfast. Um, they were lovely. They gave me the job. Um, but the studio made it very clear I was working for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. The studio, which was like the first time anybody actually said that more than once. But um, so we got down. Well, two things happened. We got there. I, I was working on it for about two weeks. Then we went to Sofia, Bulgaria, which is where the entire movie shot. Um, and we were there for about two weeks. I literally moved into my apartment on Friday afternoon. On Saturday, they said, you know, the pandemic has started, all foreigners out. So they kicked us out of the country. And I was on the plane on Sunday. Um, I never really unpacked, so it worked good. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I worked on it about six weeks here. We went back in July, no, June. Went back in June, uh, started building everything. It was good because it, in a lot of ways, we could go, my crew and I in uh, Bulgaria could go through everything, plot everything out. It's kind of like what you want to do. Like nobody started building immediately. You know, I could catch mistakes and do that stuff beforehand. And then we went and we got that monster up. And uh, four days into the shooting, there was definitely, when they say um, creative differences, that's truly what happened on this. Mm-hmm. The directors were going down a way, which they explained, I thought, very well. But then the studio was seemed to be surprised about it, and they made that change. So working with David, first of all, David is a badass, and so is DP Rick Diaz, because they came into this project four days into shooting. And we only shut down for a week. So I had three days with David to go through everything. We adjusted. We did adjust a few things so because it was a different way, of, uh, a different approach. And uh, that was the longest three days of my life. 
because mm-hmm. you know I wanted I wanted to make this movie for a variety of reasons. I certainly didn't want it to not happen. And you know, David, for, I mean, that happened in my for me. Um, and you know, I saw the first day of dailies and was like, okay, I'm in. He's doing an interesting thing here. Let's go. So yeah. there you go. That's. That's get it. That's how it started. Yeah, and that seems crazy. And I'm sure that doesn't happen on every project no. you work on, where no. a director is changes after no. filming already starts. Can you speak to um, what at all you needed to adjust in your work? At in my David work was a lot of it was um, Rick wanted to do a lot of top light, um, so that meant me rearranging a lot of features in the town, putting up new fixtures, adjusting some of the sets with, you know, much brighter overhead light. Um, And the biggest thing, which, you know, when someone goes, well, what didn't you like in the set? I don't like this, but it works brilliantly. But (laughs) David wanted at the head of the stairs, the Oculus window that I did with colored glass. It makes no architectural sense whatsoever. If in theory, if you looked out there, you'd be looking inside the wall, but he wanted it for that silhouette. He did it. I saw it. I admitted he was right. It doesn't matter when push comes to shove. It doesn't matter about architectural um, geography. Yeah. Um, You know, you mentioned at the top how you sort of finally felt what it was like working for a big franchise film like a Marvel um, franchise coming into this because this has such a huge fan base. So many films in this franchise. Um, Was there that and I'm not sure this is something that you've done before um, with, you know, coming on to a film that already had this huge fan base that, you know, wasn't an original IP. Um, Can you talk a little bit about if there was any sort of heightened pressure to sort of get it right and do it, well, do it justice you know, it for would, the fans. It, well, yes. I mean, you know, you realize that there's been what, seven films altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two of whom were designed by the same guy. So there's only six of six of us in the world that have ever done this. Yeah. Um, so that, and that was a part of the charm too, to come into something that's somewhat established, but early on, we, I say we, you know, a group of producers and directors and the script had already been done. So we were just talking in the sense of, okay, you got to throw all the sequels away. You can't, they're such a mishmash. They're all going for exactly the same thing. It's somehow playing off the original with the whole family, the loan house that yada you know everything like that so fede alvarez was like 50 years later we put him in a town and it's like jaws i mean i believe the one thing we did was we delivered was texas chainsaw and massacre are we anywhere near as scary as the first one was never be it'll never happen nobody's making a thirty thousand dollar movie nobody you know what i mean that was lightning in a bottle. So if we're going to do something, let's not try to recapture that. Let's bring something new to it. Let's bring, I mean, I'm always amazed when sequels just try to regurgitate the same story. 
And it's like, no, there's a reason that that, I mean, take some shitty movies and rework them. Sure. That would be great. But I mean, I think the idea of taking something like, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street, whatever possessed them to do that as a reboot. Right. Halloween obviously had a great idea for the reboot and that's what you got to do. And I also will say, I know that we're accused of copying the whole um, Halloween set up by bringing Sally Hardesty in there. But I can honestly say to you, no, that's not, that wasn't the, the thinking at all. There was a whole backstory to this that was in a much earlier script that honestly makes a little more sense, um, but it doesn't make for a faster movie. But it was Sally. I've already spoken on Turner about this, so you know if it comes back on my ass, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, she was she came into town. The whole setup is exactly as you see it. When she's yelling at him, you know, say my name, and you realize he has no, you know, no idea what she's talking about. She was never anything more than an after, not even an afterthought to him. And she's spending the last 50 years in survivor guilt. When originally in the original script, she realized that, and she had really come because not to kill Leatherface, but to have Leatherface kill her to end her pain so she could be with her friends, which then jived with the younger sister having been a survivor guilt as well and then it would have been a passing of the torch it didn't really work um it it's uh it makes for a better film but the criticism i think that we get about sally is legitimate right um if we'd done it that other way it would have been not i mean still would they still would have come after me i mean that's what they you know it's like Half the world hates what we did. Half the world loves what we did. And I knew that going in. <laughs> you spoke earlier how you just avoided all the sequels to the original. Was the original in a way sort of like your Bible and the thing that you kept on looking back to? I'm going to say something really, truly yeah. horrifying to all the horror fans. Of yeah. Texas. I never really thought that much about it. Mm-hmm. It was an okay movie. I actually saw it originally when it came out. Yeah. It was scary than hell. It was one of those movies that I said to myself, okay, I'm glad I saw that. I'll never see it again. Mm-hmm. When I got this gig, I sat down and watched it. I was absolutely amazed. I mean, Hooper is given a lot of credit as a director there, but he's not given nearly enough credit as an editor because the editing makes that movie. There is no, I mean, it's nowhere near as gory as ours. You never see any, never see a chainsaw hit, touch a person. The only thing is the prick. The only thing is, is the prick on the finger. That's Mm -hmm. it in the whole movie. So I'm, listen, I do horror movies, but I do them as if I'm doing a regular movie. That's my approach, which I think is a very successful approach. You know, I don't hang hemp on the top of things to make it strange. Reality is strange enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So my gut was to play it, you know, the town had to be a character, but to play it as straight as possible and not to come in. I, I feel about horror movies that they're sort of the film noir of our time. In the film noir, you could approach social issues that you couldn't do in regular things. I mean, you know, there, the touch of evil 
deals with racism, you know, all those things were sort of, you know, from divorced people to drugs, all that stuff. We approach that now in horror movies so that, you know, yes, we make a little bit of a statement about, you know, new generation, which of course is the same as the original, um, the, uh, you know, a little bit of survivor's guilt, a little bit of that, but I don't think we take any heavy hand in any of that, but it's um, like, I keep, I, I keep saying, we delivered Texas chainsaw and a hell of a massacre. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the town of Harlow and I want you to expand on that because it is a fictional town. So what was sort of the backstory or personality of the town since you said it was a character in the film and it is a character in the film. What was the personality you had in your head of this town? Well, and did you look to any other real life towns in Texas well, as yes, a model? I, yes, that actually I did. Um, but not in the way you think. A few years ago, I did a movie um, called Donnybrook, which is set in um, Ohio um, in pre- present day. I mean, it's very, it's very poetic movie. Mm-hmm. But we shot in a town called Middleton. And in Middleton had been a thriving town in the 50s. It has the world's largest steel mill there. What happened was people my age, their parents said, drop out of school, go work in a factory, you'll get 60 bucks an hour. So they all did that. Then the factories died. They had no skill set. And the town, you know, any kid left town. People started leaving town. You know, if I... I'd pull up to a Wendy's and there's a 70 year old man handing me the hamburger, you know, because <laughs> there are no teenagers and he's got nothing else he can do. And the town itself, I mean, they tried to sell me the movie theater for a hundred bucks. That movie theater was built in 1920, held 2000 people. And it had been refurbished just for Cleopatra in 1964. It was stunning, but the ass Bestus was, I mean, it would cost me a million dollars to have cleaned it up. Mm-hmm. And they had all these, you know, everything was five and dimes, pawn stores. Uh, my favorite one was a, there was an upholstery store that uh, rehabbed. These guys will probably come back and kill me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Hired um, ex-cons and they did this reupholstery. It was the worst reupholstery I'd ever seen in my life. It was terrible, but that was a thriving business there. Right. You know, so when I started to think of Texas, I wanted to think of a town that had had its heyday, had a resurgence. They Then they threw some money maybe at the 70s, and then people died out, people left, and eventually somebody come in with a couple of dollars so they could afford to leave. Because like all the suburbs around Middleton, people bought those houses for way more than they're worth now. Mm-hmm. So they can't even leave. I, we, there's, a, there's a sequence in the movie where we need um, an abandoned house. I had 12 choices of abandoned houses to the point of like, you know, dishes on the table. That's really what I wanted to do is somebody just stood up left the house, didn't do the dishes. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted the town to feel like, you know? So 
One of the other weird things that I came across with doing research, because I, I do way too much research, but I came across a little thing that the uh, university, uh, Texas University, University of Texas, yeah, in Austin, they just started their architectural school in the 1890s. And they sent their students to the Chicago World's Fair, which was a very, it's called the White City, it was very ornate. And they brought that back with them. And so you see these little towns in Texas with this amazing brickwork and cornices and things, you know, and it's was the drugstore or was the five and dime. You know, it's not like wooden cowboy towns. Mm -hmm. It's these substantial things. And, you know, so once I started, I couldn't say, you know, I, it was like, we're going to make this a, a real as possible. And then we're going to make it sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I said to my guys. We're just going to make it sad. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you've done so much great work in the, the realm of horror. I mentioned <laughs> it follows at the top of this, but also Hellfest you've done. Um, can you talk about how your past work in horror helps inform your work in Texas Chainsaw? I, I, I've gotten to the I've gotten to the point. Listen, there are tricks that I definitely can do. Yeah. You know, I started off as a scenic artist. So when it comes to aging, I'm very meticulous. Um, and Texas Chainsaw was every, I mean, to the point where we made handmade doors to make sure we were like really into it. Um, I've begun to, people come to me a lot for color because certainly it follows. I mean, it follows was after 12 years of commercials. And I decided I wanted to get back into films. Mm -hmm. And every production designer in this town turned that job down. And I got it on a Saturday, a Friday, and I was in Detroit on Sunday because I saw something there. So I, I don't know if I really know anything about scripts, but I like to think I do. Um, because certainly having it follows changed my life. But then so did Promising Young Woman. Yeah. You know, and both of those were small budgeted, very um, tight time wise. And I just know that that kind of a thing, Xbox, sometimes it works better for me, you know, because then I, I really have to come up with stuff right from my gut. But um, I think all horror movies for me, come from seeing Dracula when I was a kid on a black and white television being my first horror movie and everything springs from that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Everything I do just starts from that. Yeah. And you mentioned promising young woman, which is just phenomenal mm. work and it's worth noting. It's so hard to believe given your filmography, but that is what landed you your first art directors guild nomination yeah. um, last year. So congrats on, um, Thank you. congrats on that recognition. Um, I had a couple more Texas Chainsaw Massacre sure, questions to ask on. you before I get nowhere to go. switching gears to I Want You Back. But I heard somewhere, and this is such an incredible thing you did, but you were able to get the original Chainsaw from the 74 film. Can well, you speak to how you were all, able to? I did not. Okay. Um, Talk me through that, though, being able to okay, find it and bring it There's in. actually a funny little part okay. of it. So it is indeed the original. Mm -hmm. Kim, ugh. I'm not going to remember his name, but he was uh, the original writer and he directed the third film. After the first film, he kept the chainsaw. It's never been used again. 
FedA talked them into letting us use it. Now, getting the original train saw into Bulgaria mm-hmm. was not easy. In the end, we had to wait till there were a lot of uh, executives coming over and they were coming over in a private jet. And we put it in that because it was like we could not get it in the country. Um, And the thing is, anytime you see that thing running, anytime you see the blade going, that is the original. Um, It was cantankerous. It's 40, 50 years old. Sometimes it would start. Sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes it would stop in the middle of a scene. Um, But it was well worth having that piece, you know, to that touchstone. Because I think that part is cool that we have the same, the same chainsaw. Yeah, I think that's amazing. That's really cool. Um, well, I have to ask because I read somewhere um, following the film's release, David, the director, expressed interest in a sequel. He he, oh. he saw an idea for a continuation of this story should Legendary decide to move forward with one. Have you thought of what, a sequel. No, we have like we it. have not. It's very okay. funny you asked that because I was thinking, oh, I gotta call David because we set up a sequel. Mm-hmm. There is a sequel there. Okay. Whether I've seen no scripts, we threw out ideas constantly about what the next one should be. So I don't know where it's going to relent. My personal idea is that we do Texas Chainsaw the Musical and kick Rocky Horror out of the midnight shows. That's a good idea. That's a better idea. (laughs) That's great. Um, Well, I want to switch gears over to I Want You Back, which is just, I mean, I don't think anyone would be able to guess that these two films were designed by the same production designer as yourself. Um, I read somewhere, I think while you were doing press for Promising Young Woman and you first, you know, got that script, you initially said, you know, I'm not the guy to hire for something like this. You're, you were interested in something more fun, more interesting, something like a Texas chainsaw. And you said that um, in relation to Promising Young Woman, sounds like something that you could say about I Want You Back too, where maybe, you know, on the surface, it's not something that's particularly exciting for a production designer like yourself. But what eventually made you um, come over oh, to wanting to be I, part of I this? like to go from big sets. Uh-huh location things or you know not i mean i don't look for it it what like i don't put up my nose to it if it comes yeah yeah so my last three movies there's one unfortunately that hasn't come out is a horror movie and it's spectacular the georgetown project we'll see if it ever comes out it's killing me Mm -hmm. um because it's some of my best scenery Mm -hmm. um so i had as you can I mean, it's going to happen again, too. Um, When I did It Follows, every horror movie was sent to me. Like every horror movie. And it was like, "Mm," but I knew that we were looking at Under the Silver Lake soon. So I sort of passed on a lot of it. Um, So when I got that script, I had a couple of really good, I mean, a lot of really good stuff. But no one died in this one. My body count at that point was gigantic. And I was like, my first break in films came from the fabulous Baker boys. I was brought up from the, the, being the head scenic to the art director. 
So I started on rotten comms. Um, so every once in a while, I'll reach back and, you know, pull out those bag of tricks. And when I was talking to them, you know, they were mentioning Harry Met Sally and, you know, these were all great movies, but they were in the 90s and they had money. Most rom-coms now, you know, they spend all the money on the two actors and then just shoot kind of willy-nilly. So I said to them, if you want me to do this movie, then I'm going to put color. I'm going to change things. I'm going to elevate the entire movie. And since we're shooting in Atlanta, I don't know of any movie that makes a big deal about Atlanta, but we should. You know, there are cool places or cool neighborhoods. Anything that was cool, we went to. Um, you know, so I got to paint everything. I got to, you know, I had a fun time upholstering many things. Um, so, yeah, it was, like, you know, it's a it's a another skill set. Yeah, it was such a timely movie, you know, for it to come out now because it's just such a warm light, you know, warm, yeah. like very, very easy to watch film. Um, and I think it's partly because, as you mentioned, it is nostalgic of the rom-coms of the 90s and the yeah. early 2000s. Can you speak about how, even though it's a film that's contemporary set in today, um, how, why you wanted to sort of draw in those, um, those feelings of those rom-coms well, back in the, in the day. Of, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one of the reasons I spent a very, I don't want to say lonely because I, I don't mind being alone too much, but you know, I spent seven months in Sophia. Everything was shut down. Mm -hmm. It was tough. It was not a, was not, you know, I'm in Eastern Europe and we're in a pandemic. It's not like I'm in LA where I can go in my backyard and it's sunny. Um, but um, so I just, I just thought to do it justice. It was, it was a great script and an incredible cast. The director and I hit it off really well and he did a, a brilliant job. He Jason got performances Orland. that are just amazing. Yeah, Jason Orland, just amazing. Um, so it was just, I, I just felt like, you know, it's, a, it's another younger director. It's a, a, a guy that has some of the same visual touchstones as I do. Why not do it? Um, I mean, I'll be honest, when I came back from Sophia, I got COVID mm -hmm. on the airplane because <laughs> I'd been, I was tested that that day. So I came home and I had COVID and I had it pretty bad. I, I didn't ever get to my lungs, but after it was like, I really want to do something nice. Yeah. So that's what I did. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was great. And the team behind it, you mentioned Jason, but also Elizabeth Berger and Isaac Aptiker. They're just, Absolutely. They, they do Absolutely. great. They just churn out great work all the time. So it's, it was, it was honestly, it was tough because we, we had COVID problems. Yeah. And, um, but it, I, I love it. I mean, there, there, I mean, there's two movies that I can't, I can say that I was not surprised by. And that was Texas. And I want you back. It was exactly what we talked beginning to end. It's exactly what we talked about at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. and that's a real rarity. For my last question. Um, okay. I want to ask what you 
previously mentioned, I was going to mention it anyway, which is the Georgetown Project. I know we don't know when it's going to come out. Hopefully it'll come out sometime this year. It's a Miramax film. Mm -hmm. Um, Great cast, Russell Crowe, Sam Worthington, Chloe Bailey. Um, Can you share a little bit about what the story is of the Georgetown Project and what we can expect from your work when we're eventually able to watch? Well, you'll see the best of my work ever. Um, I can't really... As, as soon as I start to mention the situation, you'll know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. It is not a reboot, but um, a different view of a very popular existing movie. Um, I'll give you one little hint. Mm-hmm. Max, Max Van Sydow was almost in it to play the same part he played before. So this is based on a true story, this film, <laughs> or partly? Um, possibly, yeah. 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 And and it's a period piece? No, or, no, okay. no, no. I will say that one of the directors is, um, I won't say that either. Jason, you'd have to look it up. Josh Miller. Look up Josh Miller. You yeah. might, between Max Van Sido and Josh, you'll get a clue to what this is. Yeah. And, um, it's directed by M.A. Fortin and Joshua John Miller. I believe this is at least one of their, if not both of their directorial debuts. Yes. What was it like working with Lovely. first-time directors? I, could, I had, yeah. of late, I've been very lucky, not all of them, but most of them, this this sort of this weird last part of my career that yeah. came out of nowhere, um, have been lovely people to work with. Um, and that's really, you know, it, it was funny. Emerald Fresnel just nailed it when she goes, I don't want to work in the households. It's pretty much, you know, it's like, I don't want to do that. And, and I made one mistake along the way, but those guys were, I mean, you know, promising young woman, super serious piece of film, an important piece of film. Yeah. We laughed every day. Yeah. It was, you know, and that's, that just makes everything better. I say that to my crew. You're here till you stop making me laugh. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, do you enjoy working with young up and coming directors? Because it seems like since it follows, most of them have been sort of these um, first timers. Yeah, I and- do because, and listen, I don't even know if um, more established or, directors would be more problematic, but I just find that one, they, they appreciate me because I'm not a cynic. Mm-hmm. And most people my age that have been in the business as long as I am, have been get mm-hmm. cynical. I'm not, I'm not. And That's you put crazy. me on a soundstage and I'm like a three-year-old, you know, it's like, Ooh, movies were made here. Um, so I, and for them, I think, Production design is something they probably couldn't afford in their first couple of movies. You know, that it was just somebody who did production design. And listen, I was as ambitious a designer when I started out. I should have stayed an art directed more, but I didn't. I jumped into some terrible movies, but it allowed me to do stuff, learn stuff. Now I take the approach of, you know, I'm there to support them. And I know, they know that I know how to do that. 
you know, it's not, it's like, this is what I want. He's going to, because it's always the thing of like, you don't never want to say no. It's how do we work our way up till we both can say yes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's nice for, it's nice that they appreciate that. And, you know, I'm like, um, I mean, like with, (laughs) with David Robert Mitchell, he is a film savant from it follows. Yeah. Oh my. And, and under the silver lake. Yeah. He knows everything about every movie ever made. It, it's yeah. just like amazing, but he know about these movies and I tell them how they did it. And then it, it was like, we did so many of those tricks and it follows. And certainly under the silver Lake, it was like old Hollywood stuff. Yeah. Um, uh- I'll let you go, Michael. Um, but thanks so much for taking the time oh, to chat absolutely. with me. I really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Hollywood podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.